Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about advances in the treatment of melanoma with Dr. Mario Schnoll. Dr. Schnoll is a professor of medicine and medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine and co-director of the Cancer Immunology Program at Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery at Yale and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. So Mario, maybe we can start off by just refreshing uh, our memories and, and educating our listeners on what exactly is melanoma? How many people get it? How many people die from it? And how do we recognize it? Melanoma is a cancer of uh, melanocytes. Those are the cells in your body that give you pigment. So you have them everywhere. Most people get melanoma of the skin, but some people get melanoma in their eyes, behind the eyes, and some get it in mucosal membranes. That means inside the mouth, inside the nose, or in the uh, vaginal or rectal areas. Uh, Some people even get it underneath their fingernails. Um, It's uh, not a common malignancy. Um, I would guess in the U.S., 70 or 80,000 people would get a primary melanoma per year. And I think the statistics show that about 8,000 people die per year from melanoma, somewhere in that range. And so, you know, when we think about melanoma, many of us think of it primarily as a skin cancer. We think of it primarily being related to sun exposure. Is that right? That's correct. And so what can we do to reduce our risk of getting melanoma? Well, primarily uh, reduce the number of sunburns and excessive sun exposure. Um, clearly, sun exposure is related to development of melanoma, but not all melanomas. Remember, melanomas from that form behind the eye or in the mucosal membranes or in non-sun exposed areas are not related to sun exposure, but most melanomas are related to sun exposure. So uh, limiting um, sunburns, not using uh, tanning beds, for example, could reduce your risk of developing melanoma. And of course, some people have more risk. Those who have light skin and light eyes are at greater risk for developing melanoma than those that have darker skin. Why is that? I mean, if melanocytes are the cells that give you pigment, they would presumably have less melanocytes, right? You know, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question, but obviously the darker your skin is, the more the uh, you are protected from excessive sun exposure. But actually don't know the answer to that question. I was just curious. So so if if you can avoid sun exposure, so let's talk a little bit about sunscreen. Um, does it actually work? So I'm not an expert on this. You know, this is mostly an area of dermatologists, and I treat mostly people with advanced disease. But the answer is it probably does, and I think SPFs of 30 or higher are probably adequate. Um, There are certain kinds of sunscreens that that are are targeted to UVB radiation rather than UVA, and I think UVB is actually more important for damage than uh, UVA radiation. So um, at least dermatologists recommend using these sunscreens to reduce your, your risk. And so the other question that I have with regards to just melanoma in general is, how do people get melanoma 
in these non-sun exposed areas, in the mucosal membranes behind the eye and so on, if we think about melanoma, I mean, I think of it really in a very simplistic fashion that, you know, the sunlight is radiation. The radiation kind of screws up your DNA in your skin cells um, and aberrant DNA causes cancer. Well, where, what are the sources, the mutagenic sources that cause melanoma in other places? No one really knows. Um, there are cancers for which we don't know the inciting causes and melanomas that occur um, in the acral regions, for example, underneath the fingernails, in the bottom of the foot, um, in the mucosal areas, in the vaginal and rectal areas are clearly not sun exposed. But the factors that cause DNA damage that, that leads to mutations, that lead to cancer, uh, isn't clear. It's also important to remember that uh, the biology of melanomas that start in non-exposed areas is very different than melanomas that start in the skin. The mutations that drive those melanomas and the altered pathways are different in melanomas from mucosal areas, uh, acral antigenous, which means underneath the fingernail or under the foot. Those mutations are different than mutations that occur in sun-exposed melanomas. Hmm. That's interesting. And, and so, and similarly, the, the melanomas that occur in the back of the eye might be different. That's correct. And so how does one actually figure out that one has a melanoma, say, in the back of the eye? I mean, we, we, we know the ABCDEs of melanoma of the skin, that these are, tend to be asymmetric lesions. They have ragged borders. The color is variegated. The diameter is more than six millimeters, and they're on exposed areas of the skin. Um, but how do we really clue in to whether or not we might have a melanoma in the back of our eye. Rarely it affects vision, but most of the time these things are picked up by optometrists and ophthalmologists during routine exams, and they find a macule, and they follow that macule over time. That's a, just a pigmented spot in the retina. And the, over time, there are certain changes that occur in that spot that lead to the diagnosis of an ocular melanoma. People who present with uh, rectal melanomas, for example, may present with uh, rectal bleeding or spotty bleeding that's often attributed to hemorrhoids, and then ultimately a biopsy is done and found to be melanoma. Similarly, for melanomas that occur in the nasal cavity, sometimes people present with bleeding and uh, ultimately scans and further workup will show a mass and it's biopsied and it turns out to be a nasal mucosal melanoma. So uh, in those cases, most people, an ocular melanoma probably picked up uh, incidentally by an ophthalmologist, but in other cases they present with symptoms. And, and so, so is, could we then hypothesize that these melanomas that don't occur in the skin tend to present at a later stage simply because on the skin it's, it's immediately visible, uh, whereas in these other areas you're kind of waiting for it to be incidentally picked up or, or present with symptoms? Um, it's, we don't stage melanomas of the mucosal areas exactly the same way we stage mucos, uh, melanomas of the skin. Um, what we can say, for example, is that most melanomas of the eye are picked up at a primary stage, so before they develop metastatic disease, which is similar to melanomas of the skin. And I think that's also true of mucosal melanomas. They're often picked up before 
they develop metastases or, or spread to other organs. On the other hand, we've often felt that melanomas that start in the mucosal surfaces are more likely uh, by depth, by ulceration, other factors that we use for staging, more likely to develop metastatic disease. And so, and so I guess the, the key message here is that it's better uh, to find these cancers at an early stage before they spread. And the good news seems to be that ocular melanomas, skin melanomas, tend to be found before they spread. They are found before they're spread. 90% of melanomas are found when they're primary lesions. In other words, before they spread beyond either the skin where they started or the closest lymph node to that, to that primary site. But we still don't, we, we think that catching melanomas early um, is better. It should be, makes sense. But it could be that the melanomas that we catch earlier do better because they're less aggressive yeah, to begin with. they're just indolent. That's correct. And so I don't think we know. There's some evidence from Australian studies, and again, I'm not an expert on this because this is primarily the, the realm of dermatologists, but um, there's some evidence that early detection does lead to better outcomes. So when you said earlier that the mutational pathways of different melanomas is different, um, might, might that also play a role in terms of how aggressive these are and at what stage they present? Not clear that you can tie prognosis or how they'll do to the mutational uh, status of that tumor to the different kinds of mutations. So it's not clear, for example, that BRAF mutant melanomas are different than NRAS mutant melanomas or different than CKIT mutant melanomas on the basis of the mutation, as far as we know. I see. So so let's talk a little bit about these mutations, though. I mean, because what you've pretty much given us so far is alphabet soup. Why, why do we care about these mutations? Well, they're really only important in the sense of um, whether you might have something to treat them when they develop metastatic disease or to treat them to prevent recurrence. And of all the mutations that occur in melanoma, the only one that's really reliably treatable at this point is the BRAF mutation. So for that mutation, there is a drug. And if you have that mutation, we can use these drugs to either help to prevent recurrence or to treat the disease once it becomes advanced. And so... Is it the case that all melanomas will undergo some sort of a mutational profile so that we know whether your particular melanoma has a BRAF mutation or not? That's correct. And in fact, I left one out. There's a, a rare mutation in CKIT, um, which occurs more commonly in the mucosal and acral antigenous, in other words, the non-skin non melanomas, that it, that's also treatable. We often do molecular profiling. Um, when a melanoma is detected in the, in the primary setting, especially if they have lymph node metastases, because if those melanomas have a BRAF mutation, one of the options to treat to prevent recurrence is if they have a BRAF mutation. You can use these drugs called BRAF and MEK inhibitors. You actually use them in combination to try and prevent the recurrence of melanoma in the future. How effective are those? So interestingly enough, um, more effective than we thought they would be. There's a randomized trial, um, for example, using the dibrafenib and trimetinib, which are BRAF and MEK inhibitors. They target the BRAF mutation, which has shown really dramatic improvements in what's called progression-free survival, meaning the time until 
the melanoma develops. And there's some preliminary evidence that suggests that they may even improve overall survival in those patients. So um, it does appear that using BRAF MEK inhibitors to treat patients who have BRAF mutations is effective at reducing recurrences. At one point, we actually thought that because these are targeted drugs, that they may only work while you're taking the drug. But actually, the effect on progression-free survival persists even after you stop the drugs. Usually, they're given for a year. And are they expensive? They sound expensive. Yes, they're, they're probably expensive. Um, I don't know what the exact cost of the drug is. Sometimes, if you have to pay out of pocket for these drugs, they could cost ten dollars or $12,000 per month or And maybe it's given more. for a year. And it's given for a year. But of course, as you know, many of these drugs are covered by insurance. The high copays that are associated with it can often be reduced through a variety of programs. And so fortunately here in Connecticut, I don't think that we've ever not been able to give these drugs because of cost. So so that, that was going to be my other question was whether they are in general covered by insurance, but it sounds like they are, which is a good, a good thing. Yes. So... Now, you mentioned the other mutation was CKIT, and for listeners of this show, CKIT is associated with other GI stromal tumors, right? That's correct. It's associated with GI stromal tumors. That mutation, similar mutations are also seen in melanoma, and patients with advanced melanoma who have CKIT mutations can respond to these drugs that are called CKIT inhibitors, and there's a number of them on the market. So we're going to take a short break for a medical minute, but I'd like to learn more about uh, all kinds of melanomas and how we can target these uh, tumors for treatment right after we take a short break. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working side by side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about breast cancer, the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Mario Schnall. We're talking about advances in melanoma treatment, and right before the break, Mario was telling us about tumor profiling for melanomas and the fact that we now can figure out that some of these melanomas have mutations in genes like BRAF uh, and CKIT, uh, where we actually have drugs to target these mutations that can have uh, a lasting impact, particularly for BRAF. So, Mario, just to wrap up our conversation with regards to that, do we find that CKIT inhibitors uh, also are very effective in uh, CKIT mutant melanoma? In advanced melanoma, meaning melanoma that's spread to other organs, the CKIN inhibitors can produce, in some subset of patients, 
very, very good responses. They're not curative agents. They don't cure the disease. But uh, as far as we can tell, they cause tumor regression. Some of those regressions can last a reasonable period of time. And so probably the subset of people that get CKID inhibitors, some of them live longer because they uh, receive these drugs. In advanced disease, whereas when we talked about BRAF inhibitors, you had mentioned that the BRAF inhibitors are actually used in the treatment setting, so when you get your primary melanoma to prevent recurrence. That's correct. For we, We've never done a what's called an adjuvant trial with the CKID inhibitors, which means using them to try and prevent recurrence once a primary tumor is resected. But for the BRAF MEK inhibitors, which target the BRAF mutation, we know they're effective in advanced disease. They prolong survival in advanced disease, and they uh, also are effective in trying to prevent recurrences in people who have high-risk primaries. Remember that we stratify people when they have a primary tumor by a certain factors which tell us what their risk is of recurrence. And so we use the BRAF MEK inhibitors in people who have a high risk for showing up with metastatic disease in the future, and those are the patients that we give, that we treat in order to prevent those recurrences. So why haven't those studies been done in people who are at high risk for developing advanced disease in the adjuvant setting using CKIT inhibitors? Because it's much, much more a rare tumor. So only a few patients, a very small number of patients, will have uh, CKIT mutations. It would require a huge effort and may even be impossible to do a randomized trial given the small number of patients that present with CKIT mutant melanomas in the course of a year. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, if you're tumor profiling all of these patients with melanoma and one of the mutations that is in your panel is CKIT, and a patient has uh, a primary melanoma where they have risk factors for developing advanced disease and they happen to be one of those few patients who has a CKIT mutation, we would then wait until they developed advanced disease before we treat them because we don't have the randomized controlled trials and may never. In some cases, yes. I mean, there are subset of patients where we might go ahead and treat without the data because they're at such, such high risk that it makes sense to go ahead and, and give them that treatment. But remember, we don't have a lot of data. It's for BRAF mech it's a targeted therapy. It's not curative. We never actually thought that they would actually have such a meaningful effect or a prolonged effect in the adjuvant setting even after you stop the drugs. Uh, we don't have similar data with CKID, although in, in GIST tumors, in gastrointestinal stromal tumors, there is some evidence that giving the drugs earlier can have a greater effect than giving them at the time of advanced disease. But I also want to point out that these are not our only options for treating patients in the adjuvant setting. In many of these patients, we can use immune therapies, which may even be more effective. And I guess we'll be going on to discuss that in the next few yeah. minutes. So why don't, we, why don't we talk about that? Tell us more about immunotherapy. Who's eligible for it? How effective is it? What are the side effects? So for many years, people have used immune therapy to treat melanomas. Um, and they showed some uh, evidence of uh, benefit. For example, the drug interleukin-2, which was the only drug that we had available really for many years, 
produce cures in a small subset of people with advanced metastatic disease. It was really remarkable, about 5 to 10% of people who would go probably go on to die of advanced cancer could have complete regression of their cancers, complete remissions, and would be cured of their disease. But it was only a small number of patients that benefited from interleukin-2. The next drug that was developed was a drug called anti-CTLA-4. It's also called ipilimumab. It's also called Yervoy. Um, Yervoy seemed to increase that number a little bit in terms of patients who could be treated in the advanced disease setting and could achieve long-term remissions. In fact, a Nobel Prize was just given for the development of ipilimumab. It was given to Jim Allison just within the last two or three weeks. But what really changed the field was the introduction of drugs that target PD-1. So um, PD-1, like CTLA-4, is a molecule that is expressed by activated T cells, and it serves to actually bring down the function, to inhibit the function of those T cells. So when you block CTLA-4, that's ipilimumab, or you block PD-1, which is a drug like nivolumab or pembrolizumab, also known as Obdivo and Keytruda, you actually allow those T cells to start working again. They're no longer being inhibited within the tumor, and they can cause remarkable tumor regression. And so we went from a point where perhaps the five-year survival for melanoma might be 10 or 15%. With the introduction of a drug like anti-PD-1, we think that the five-year survivals now for melanoma would be close to 35 to 40%. And when you combine anti-PD-1 and anti-CTLA-4, that five-year survival might be another 10% higher. It could be that 45 or 50% of patients who present with advanced melanoma could live five years or longer because of the use of these drugs. Come again, comparing historically to only 5 to 10% who would have been alive 10 years ago. Because these drugs uh, tend to work by releasing the immune system, right? They release the immune system to attack the melanoma. They can also release the immune system to target normal tissues. And so the major side effect of these drugs is called autoimmunity or the immune system attacking normal tissues. And it can attack your skin, your bowel, your liver, your heart, your lungs, your endocrine organs, anything that you can think of, it can attack. And that's the, the basis of the toxicity of these drugs. Fortunately, we know that in many patients we can turn off those side effects with medicines that actually then suppress the immune system. But when we do that, we don't seem to lose, in most patients, the anti-tumor effect. Mm. So so when we talk about this advanced survival in people who are treated with uh, anti-PDL1, for example, are those, is that effect only in people who express this PDL1? So the people whose immune system is turned off in the tumor itself? Or is this across the board for all melanomas? So let me let me clarify that that we use anti PD one. The the Sorry. thing that binds to PD one is PDL one. Anti PDL one can work too, but in melanoma, for the most part, we've used anti PD one. Um, it is true that people who have PDL one expression in the tumor seem to do better. But for whatever reason in melanoma, people who are PDL1 negative, whose tumors don't express PDL1, can also derive substantial benefit from these drugs. So you ask, why is that the case? We believe that the assays may be um, missing some of the PDL1 expression within the tumor microenvironment. So these negative results may be 
perhaps true false negatives, and then in fact those patients do have an active immune response in the tumor microenvironment, and giving anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-1 can release those T lymphocytes to attack the tumor. And so, so when we talk about the survival benefit, it, that's across the board. Well, it's across. It can be seen in both PD-L1 negative and PD-L1 positive patients. Um, the the survival effects clearly patients who are PD-L1 positive in melanoma do better. Right. But you still see the effect in the PD-L1 negative patients. But again, remember, we're only of a hundred patients. We're only truly benefiting, really long-term benefiting, maybe 35 to 40 percent. Right. And the other question is, you know, when we talk about, well, you know, you release the immune system and so the immune system can attack all of these other normal tissues. Um, why is that? Because normally your immune system doesn't attack that. Is it that your normal cells actually have some PD-1 or PD-L1 that, 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 or anti-PD-L1 that... that that prevents your immune system from attacking them, and so when you take away that that block, that your immune system goes and attacks your normal tissues, and it just is greater in the tumor. Why why does the immune system go and attack normal tissue? I thought your immune system knew the difference between normal and abnormal. There's a couple of possibilities. One possibility is that s- some people have lymphocytes in their body that can attack their normal tissues, but the reason why they live normally and don't have any symptoms is that that PDL1, PD1 pathway is actually keeping those cells under control. Mm-hmm. There may be other cells or other approaches to block the, the function of those uh, lymphocytes could, that could attack normal tissues. But the, by releasing them using uh, antibodies that block PDL1 or PD1, you may be allowing those cells to attack normal tissues. There is one other possibility, which is that um, the immune cells that are attacking the melanoma, because melanomas have lots of mutations, some of those immune cells could cross-react with normal tissues. So when you're releasing them to attack the melanoma, perhaps they can also then attack normal tissues. Mm -hmm. But more than likely, the explanation is that some of us just are walking around with lymphocytes that could attack our normal tissues but are being controlled by this pathway. So when we think about who is eligible for immunotherapy, I mean, this the survival advantage, while not 100%, I mean, it's still tenfold over what it was when we think about 5% versus now close to 50%. That's a big difference. So is everybody now being treated with immunotherapy? So... At our center, we prefer to treat almost everybody with immune therapy. The difference between immune therapy and targeted therapies, at least in advanced disease, is that you're more likely to have a durable benefit, a durable response from the immune therapy. And when I say that, what I mean is that we can, in patients, discontinue the drugs and their disease won't come back. So unless there are people who need the... There are certain groups that need the targeted therapy. If you start out with a lot of disease and you're very sick and the disease is progressing very rapidly or you require steroids which block the effect of the immune therapy, those patients probably need to be treated with targeted therapies first. Interestingly enough, there's a group of patients that have very minimal disease, just a few lymph nodes and a few skin lesions that can do very, very well with the targeted therapies. But most of the other patients probably would do better with the immune therapies. And so we usually start with immune therapies first, either anti-PD-1 alone 
or at our center, we tend to prefer to give the combination of anti-PD-1 together with anti-CTLA-4, so Obdivo together with Yervoy. And so uh, you kind of touched on this, but I just want to clarify, um, can you use targeted therapy, so for example, a BRAF inhibitor with immunotherapy? Those studies have been done, combining BRAF MEK inhibitors together with anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1. The results were presented just at ESMO. I, I don't know the results in detail, but the results were not nearly as um, promising as we had hoped. So um, th we throwing them all in together may not be the right way to do this. Um, there are some patients where we use the targeted therapies to debulk the tumor, yeah. to get them to a point where we think we can give them immune therapy, but we don't necessarily give it together. Maybe those are the patients that might benefit from using all the drugs together at the same time. But at the moment, uh, disappointingly, we don't have a lot of data that using the drugs all together at the same time is any better than using them, for example, sequentially. Do we know whether sequential therapy is better or worse than immunotherapy alone? So it probably, well, you don't, in, if you give an immune therapy, for example, to a patient that has a BRAF mutation and you go, they go into a complete response and you, you stop the therapy, it. you don't need it. Right. The patients who don't respond can then get the targeted agents and they will benefit from the targeted agents. So almost certainly sequential therapy in it's some better. patients is going to be better. Dr. Mario Schnoll is a professor of medicine and medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine and co-director of the Cancer Immunology Program at Yale Cancer Center. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.